a lot of people were scared of what the real estate market was doing. And just like you said, I looked at it as an opportunity. I had nothing to lose. I think the best source is really just genuine relationships, like organic networking. I think the best way to play it is really just, just be aware. You know, I mean, real estate doesn't move that fast in comparison to say the stock market, right? You're not gonna wake up and everything's just gonna be completely different in the real estate world. People are finding success in so many different types of real estate. And that really opened my mind to, there's not just one way to do it. Like there's a lot of ways. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Gabriel, welcome to Investor Creator. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, very good. So let's jump into your background. So I know you got started really young in the real estate world, just like I did, but kind of go through what you were doing that got you into the real estate world and what really propelled you into what we do now. Yeah. So going back kind of to the beginning was during high school, I was really stayed in high school for the social aspect of it. And because I was a high school wrestler. And so I didn't have a lot of direction. Uh, you know, academia school was just really not, not my environment. College wasn't something I was super interested in. So my senior year of high school, I had joined the army national guard and I was training one week in a month, you know, two weeks in the summer, just like the commercial. And a couple of years after high school, you know, I had had some different odd and end jobs and such. But I, uh, I picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad about two years, two years after high school. And it was really the first book that I didn't want to put down. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read the book. It's not a how-to book. It's just really a mindset around business and finances and money. And I was always attracted to business and it just made sense. And so shortly after reading that book, I got called up and I was deployed to Iraq for about a year. And so I'd read this book and on my deployment, I often thought about a lot of the lessons I learned in that book. And I started sharing with everybody like, hey, I'm going to come back and I'm going to build this real estate empire. And, you know, a lot of my friends were like, man, what are you talking about? You know, you got to you got to go back and go to school and get a job and, and all this stuff. And you mean they like, weren't no. super supportive of your dream? They just wanted to, to I, I can't believe that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, which, which now it's, it's kind of neat because a lot of them actually, you know, years later also started investing in real estate and they're like, wait a minute, this makes sense. You know, but we were all young and you know, it was a dream and they would ask like, well, how are you going to do this? And it was, I, I don't know how, but I, but I will, I'll find a way. So I got back from the deployment in 2004 and I just started looking for property. So if you know, 2004, it was a hot market and you know, I went to a lender, I got approved, even though I really didn't have a a job, a stable income, anything like that. But this was during the subprime. So, you know, after making just tons of offers and looking at properties for a year, a friend of the realtors, it was an off-market deal. And by then it's 2005. So it's like a year of looking, bought my first home. It was a three bedroom, two bath. I rented out two of the bedrooms 
you know, now, now they call it house hacking. I didn't know what house hacking was. It just made sense to rent two of the bedrooms out and live for less than I could anywhere else in town. So I did that in 05, again in 06, bought another place with no money down and in 07, 5% down. And this was, you know, this felt pretty easy. I mean, the banks were just giving out money and you always hear the horror stories of the subprime. And I just didn't over borrow, even though it was hundred percent finance, I still, I still got good deals in a hot market and I just didn't overbuy. And so that's kind of how it started. You know, 2006, I also opened up a small nutrition store and, you know, a couple of years into that, I just really wasn't making any money. So, you know, 2008, I own three houses and my store's not making any money and my first son is born and now I'm really going, oh shit, like, what do I do? And I took a bunch of odd and end jobs. So I was literally like Craigslist ad, like help wanted ads. I mean, I was just all sorts of odd and end jobs, it's like landscaping and just different things. And then I eventually landed a minimum wage job at, at a high school working in a special education class. And about three months into that job is really what, what happened about three months into that job. I was cleaning up shit that a kid threw all over the stalls. And I'm thinking about my goals and thinking, that will do that. I think that'll do it. You know, and, and my heart goes out to these kids. I mean, it's yeah. like, there's a need, you know, for me, it was just a wake up of what are my dreams? Like, what do I really want to do? And this is not a job that I want to, you know, have even for a year, let alone a lifetime. And so I had to get serious that year. I set a goal to replace that income. It felt very obtainable and achievable because it was such a low paying job that if I could replace that income with real estate and I was cash flowing a little bit, a couple hundred dollars a month on the other properties. But if I could replace that income, I could essentially quit my job and put more deals together. So I went to the bank and, and they said, there's no way we're giving you another loan. Guidelines have changed. You actually need 30% down. You need an income. You need you know all these things that I didn't have before. And they just said, hey, sorry, things have changed. For you to qualify, you have to have a couple of years worth of solid income. And you know I wasn't making enough money in the job to, to buy or qualify for any kind of house. And so I started looking at seller financing deals. I got on Craigslist every night. And started typing in keywords like seller financing, owner financing, owner terms, you know, as is, cash only, for sale by owner, all these things. And I eventually found two duplexes side by side. Uh, I was four units and structured a deal that cash flowed almost to the dollar that I was making at, at that job. And so I finished out that school year and I stopped working. And so I became, you know, really I became financially free, really young and quick, but I was far from wealthy. So when I stopped working, it wasn't that I had a ton of money. I was just able to replace my income and keep my expenses really low. And it's part of the story I just don't share enough. Like I lived very frugally for a lot of years. So I had, you know, seven units and I was poor, you know, and I, I just, I wasn't going out buying fancy things. I wasn't, you know, doing a lot of things. My focus was really on find more deals and any money that I did make, any cash flow I had, put it back in the deal. That's how I got started. Yeah. So let's kind of go back to the point where you decided, okay, I'm doing this job that I really don't like, but I'm going to replace my income through real estate because I think that that's a really interesting point because at this point you had three rentals already, correct? Yeah, correct, correct. Okay. So I think a lot of people would say, gosh, I have three rentals already and it's not really supporting me. This real estate mm -hmm. thing doesn't work. Yeah. So what was it that made you say, well, I'm going to dive deeper into real estate because you really felt like it did work. So how does that happen? So I think originally it went from, you know, even before the three houses, like I was super motivated, right? I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think this is what I'm going to do. And I'm, and I'm real motivated. And then 05, 06, 07, it felt pretty easy, right? Like in my mind, I already had that mindset. Like this is, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, but in 2008, it was really just a test of, of that mindset more than anything. Cause I had a period of time where I went, 
oh geez, like I have a son on the way. Yeah. Um, this business isn't going to make money. And so it was really that flip of, you know, I got to get my mind right. I got to get my, you know, am I serious about this? Do I believe this is something that I can do? And there was a period of time where I obviously went, okay, maybe this isn't going to work. And, you know, I, I had those couple houses and I'm doing the math going, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month of cash. So it's going to take a long time for me to build up any significant amount of wealth. But I, do, I, I knew there was an opportunity. You know, I, I remember, you know, reading something, you know, years before about like, hey, just because the banks say no, doesn't mean it has to stop you. At that time, I wasn't comfortable asking for hard money. I didn't know anyone with private money. And I just remember reading about seller finance and I thought, you know, this is an opportunity and I don't want to get stuck in that rat race of working a job. So it was really more about just getting my mind right and then taking action because it would have been really easy to go, okay, I got these three properties. The bank said, no, I have a job. I'm going to keep down that, you know, just stay down that route until I can save enough money, you know, 10 years from there to, to get 30% to buy the next one. And so, yeah, yeah it was so more about the mindset than anything. Yeah, 100%, man. There's so much more going on between our ears than everything external. And, you know, like right now, just this morning, I was reading an article on Bloomberg talking about how there could be a stay evictions for another year based on the COVID crisis. And, you know, it's like, that's a big external problem for landlords, but there's also going to be opportunity and it's almost equal opportunity to the same problem. So, you went from getting pretty easy money because of how the mortgage financing world was at that time in 04, 05, and 06. And then everything yeah. changed in 08. And so almost nobody could get a basic loan for residential real estate as a landlord at this point because they were taking back so much in foreclosures. And so at this point, you decided, okay, well, I'm going to figure out seller financing. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people were getting out of the market. A lot of people were scared of what the real estate market was doing. And just like you said, I looked at it as an opportunity. I had nothing to lose. So I have not conventionally purchased a property or, you know, bought a property in conventional financing ever, you know, to date, other than those first three properties. And even that, that's, that's subprime money. Like, I don't know if you can consider that, you know, conventional financing. But I don't think always... anything was conventional in a before five or six. So I don't <laughs> right. think... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and with the seller financing, I just felt it was such a great opportunity because the terms are so flexible, right? And I was focused on cash flow. So a lot of people were saying, isn't this risky? Isn't this scary? And you know, that, that first seller financing deal, I'm running the numbers. I had analyzed a lot of deals. And so I'm looking at the numbers going, this makes sense. What am I missing? Yeah. What's and wrong with it? Yeah. What's, what's wrong with it? And, and what I realized is like, I had nothing to lose. You know, it was a no money down deal. I had literally nothing to lose. And it just made sense. I mean, I could have found a reason not to buy every property that I've ever purchased. I could have found a reason not to buy it. At the same point, I've never bought a property that I regret buying either. And so all the what ifs that could happen didn't outweigh the what if not buying the deal. And so I bought the deal. So tell me about the negotiation that happened with that first seller. So was it your idea to go in and get seller financing or did they bring it up? And then how did that transition work? Yeah. So I found this property on Craigslist and they were offering seller financing. They had some terms written out and the terms that they were offering it penciled, like the property looked good. And that's really where I went, okay, what am I missing? Or what are they not telling me? Because they're offering terms that make sense. And I negotiated on that a little bit. And I did a few more deals very similarly, similar neighborhoods, similar types of properties. And I was feeling like, man, I'm winning. Like I need to go out and just educate all these sellers on why they should carry financing. I'm doing these no money down deals. But what I found is the sellers that carried the financing, they already wanted to carry financing. And 
I've never talked a seller into carrying financing. I've never had to convince or educate a seller into carrying financing. Not that you couldn't, because I know people that have gone out and, and really educated sellers on what that is. But after I did a few of these deals and I thought, oh, gosh, I need to go share this information with all these sellers. What I found was all the sellers that wanted to carry financing already wanted to carry financing, right? So the conversation and negotiation wasn't a hard conversation because it wasn't about, hey, here's what seller financing is. It was they wanted to carry financing. They already understood the advantage of carrying finance as a seller. And then the conversation was as simple as me just saying, hey, what kind of terms are you interested in? And that would always be my starting point. Just me basically saying, hey, what kind of terms are you interested in? Or what are you looking for? What terms would be most attractive to you? And then I would just shut up and hear, you know, just listen to what they have to say. And I would see if I can structure terms that fit what they needed and also uh, fit what I needed. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. So one thing that I kind of gathered from that is, most people are going to know what their end result needs to be. And so if we can create something that works for both sides, then we're going to have pretty easy transactions. So that makes a lot of sense. And so let's put it in perspective now. So how many units do you have that you've created at this point through all, almost all non-conventional means? Yeah, I have 175 units. I'm, I'm, cur- yeah, I'm currently selling off, uh, you know, and, I'm, and I, don't sell, I don't sell very often. But I'm selling off some of my early purchases right now you know, one sold last month, another one's pending. And part of that's just, that's where the market is. You know, it's the, yeah. there's strong equity positions. The properties are my, you know, they're not cash flowing as much as some of my other properties. And it's just the right time to, to sell some of this stuff. Very good. And so whenever you were first doing your seller finance deals, were those single family transactions as well? They were small multifamily. So that first one was two duplexes side by side. And then a lot of what I purchased from 2009 through 13, all those seller financing deals were small multifamily, some, a couple single family homes because the, the sellers would have like a duplex and a single family home on one lot or on the same street, but mostly small multifamily up until 2013. Okay. And what is considered small multifamily? Like what's the range there of units? Yeah, I was doing, let's see, up, to, up till 2013, I think the largest I had purchased, um, gosh, was I want to say six six or eight units, something like that. Okay. So six to eight units. So I think a lot of people look at multifamilies being like the next level of real estate. Yeah. So people are buying single family houses, single family houses, and then they think, well, one day I'm going to trade up into the multifamily world. So what made you jump into, it sounds like you, you jumped into multifamily pretty early. Yeah. To me, it just made sense. And then as I was looking for seller financing deals, I realized all these sellers that were willing to carry financing, they were actually investors themselves. And so it was actually easier in a way because with, you know, with single family, as you know, you, you know, you have a tenant move out hundred percent of rent's gone, right. And vacancy and turnover is expensive. And what I found with, you know, with single family, a lot of the sellers of single family, that might be the one house that they own, right. It might've been their primary residence and you're competing in a market where you have, uh, owner-occupant buyers, and they're acting a lot on emotion, right? So they're paying top dollar, especially, you know, when I look back to 05, 06, 07, you had a lot of people coming in paying so much above what the market supported because they wanted that house, they wanted to move into that house, or it had something that fit their needs, and the prices were based on comps. But with these small multifamily properties, the owners of these properties, they were investors themselves. They had typically owned the property for a lot of years, They didn't want to necessarily get the property up to retail ready or put a for sale sign in the yard or alert their tenants. And so to me, it was just an easier natural conversation and uh, easy transition into multifamily. 
because a lot of these sellers just happen to have multifamily as they were investors. Gotcha. So for the people that don't really understand the value that you bring being a borrower of seller financing. So let's just kind of flip the script and say you own a 10 plex and you yep. want to transition out of that asset. What's the value to you as an owner transferring from being an owner of real estate to an owner of a note? For the seller, there's a lot of advantages. So for one, if you were to cash out a seller, they're going to pay a huge capital gain on the sale of that property. And so, you know, most times, in fact, when I look back at the deals I've done, almost every seller has been, a, you know, men and women in their 60s or 70s. And so a lot of times by the time they're kind of in that, that part of their investment cycle, they don't want to be cashed out because they don't want to pay the huge capital gain. They don't want to actively invest. And, you know, so the, the option of doing a 1031, even though it might be beneficial from a tax standpoint, you know, these sellers typically, they, they're not actively investing. A lot of times they own another business or they have another job and they're not out there in the market. They bought these assets, you know, 30 something years ago and they're not trying to, you know, go actively invest or have another rental property. So I'd say those are, those are the biggest is, you know, not paying the capital gain all at once, um, not having to reinvest it. You know, and same thing for cashing out. If, you know, a lot of these sellers said, hey, I don't want the cash just for one, I don't want to pay the taxes and I don't want to go, I don't want to put in the stock market because they don't, trust the stock market. I don't want to actively invest because it, it creates a money problem. Now they have you know, nowhere to put the money. And so they're able to maximize their return by selling it, you know, seller financing and just earn some interest on it. And then most of these sellers, you know, that generation is typically self-managed. So you're also taking away a headache a lot of times. I mean, amazing people a lot of times they've self-managed or they've been maintenance person, repair person. They've been, you know, dealing with tenants. They've been dealing with all the parts of real estate that I don't necessarily enjoy. So you're creating this new level of passivity for them and they're able to kick back and get true mailbox money and be the bank. And I would say that's really one of the bigger ones, just that level of passivity that they get by not having to deal with the property. Yeah. And I've found that to certainly be true, especially in that age group as well, because I think a lot of landlords are kind of taught, well, you know, it's mailbox money. And that's partially true. The money does, does end up in your mailbox, but it's not as passive as what a lot exactly. of people think. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about that for just a, a quick second. So, I mean, if you have, you know, some single families and you've got some duplexes and you I'm sure some triplexes and a six unit, a 10 unit, I mean, it's, and these are, are all over the place. It seems like the management would be pretty intensive. So, I mean, how are you dealing with that? I don't manage any of my properties today. When I, I turned everything over to property management, so kind of going back to, you know, self-managing and, and the headaches and, you know, the level of passivity. When I started buying these, one of the advantages too is because a lot of these landlords were good people, but just tired, it created a scenario where these properties were poorly managed and under rented and there was some deferred maintenance. And so I would take these properties over and I would have some bad tenants that, you know, they'd move out, there'd be some repairs, there'd be some maintenance. And I was doing that stuff myself, right? And I was kind of handy, but not that handy. So I'm dealing with tenants, I'm dealing with the turnover, I'm dealing with all the stuff that I found that I didn't enjoy. And when I had 17 units and it was 10 o'clock at night and I'm repairing a toilet and I got young kids at home and I had to call, you know, a plumber anyway, uh, that's when I turned everything over to property management. And so I really found kind of through the process that I don't enjoy the property management aspect of it. I love putting deals together. Uh, that doesn't feel like work. I enjoy talking with people. I enjoy negotiating with, with sellers. But at 17 units, you know, there were months that it, I never heard from a tenant and there were months where it felt like a, you know, a full-time job. 
And so I decided to turn everything over to property management. And that was the best decision ever. When I turned the property over to property management, it's, you know, a couple months later, I bought my first uh, 11 unit property. And I was really able to focus on finding more deals because I wasn't bogged down on all the, all the little things. And that's a great segue. So how are you finding deals today? What do you find is the best source of lead generation for you? I think the best source source is really just genuine relationships, like organic networking. You know, I buy some off on market stuff, but a lot of my stuff is off market and it's truly relationship based. You know, it's telling people what you're looking for. If you can get specific to a, you know, a neighborhood and the type of property. So when I was buying those, you know, multifamily properties, I was saying like, Hey, I'm looking for multifamily in this neighborhood. I'm looking for multifamily in this neighborhood. So I don't send out mailers. I don't buy lists. Maybe there's a day that comes that I, that I do that, but it's relationships with agents and brokers, but also just being willing to open your mouth and say, Hey, here's what I'm looking for. Because a lot of the stuff that I've found, especially the off-market stuff is just because I've opened my mouth and said, here's what I'm looking for. So are you a little bit surprised by that? So I'm sure that there was a scenario in your career so far where you just had the perfect property fall into your lap based on the networking and and the relationships that you built. Can you kind of share an example where this has worked just perfectly? Yeah, I'll share multiple examples because it was kind of a realization. So going back all the way to that very first property in 2005, when everyone can get a loan and, and you're competing with a bunch of cash in the market and I'm making all these offers and just getting beat on all these properties that first house was a friend of the realtor's son. And the realtor said, hey, my buddy's son bought this home at auction. He's fixing it up. Nobody knows it's for sale. Come look at it. And so in 2005, hot market, I'm standing inside this house going, nobody else knows it's for sale. And I realized this, I didn't realize it right then, but like later I realized, wow, it's relationship based, right? Like he's taking me to a house. Nobody else knows it's for sale yet. And I was able to buy that below market in a hot market, right? So now I have one house and that was relationship. I went and made business cards and started passing them out and talk everyone I was talking to. And the second house was because I gave the card to a guy at the gym, right? The guy at the gym said, he was, became a friend of mine and he said, Hey, my friend's dad's selling a home. And it was in a neighborhood I was looking at. And that thing appraised over 40,000 above what I bought it for. But it's because I opened my mouth and said, Hey, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a property in this area. I'm looking to invest in real estate. I mean, I owned one house and had a business card saying that I'm a real estate investor because in my mind I already was. And that's how I found that second house, you know, and then kind of moving into, you know, even to the most recent deal, my last, uh, I own a couple of mobile home parks and, you know, the first one was I had a, a broker sending me all this class A apartments. And I was like, Hey, I'm looking for value add mobile home parks. And they had an in-house listing. And then the next mobile home park was a guy that I reached out to 10 years before. And I mean, and that's, and that's a great story because I reached out to a guy that was a developer 10 years before my last little home park purchase. And I reached out to him simply because I wanted to know a story. He was building all these beautiful buildings and I called him up out of the blue and just wanted to know who he was. And he was gracious enough to sit down and kind of share his story. He was buying a bunch of, you know, small multifamily stuff in the seventies when he was going to college. Now he's developing, uh, developing the land. And, you know, he asked me one day, like 10 years later, Hey, my friend's selling a single family home, the town over are you interested? And I said, no, I'm really focusing on value add multifamily, but more specifically mobile home parks. And he said, I have a mobile home park. I had no idea this guy had a mobile home park. I didn't go into that relationship, you know, 10 years before, because I thought that this guy was going to sell me something. I got into that conversation, that relationship, because I just admired the work this guy did. and wanted to know a story. 10 years later, that turned into a less than 2% down, 200% cash on cash return mobile home park. And it just- 
you know, that's genuine relationships. You know, it's, it's not going into it with any alternative motive. It's just building relationships. And that's, that's where I think the best deals are found. And that's such a great point. There's so many people that say, well, I'll, I'll get started once I have some money to market, you know, and yep. you're just proof example here that you really don't have to go that route if you don't choose to go that, that route. Right. Yep. So, I mean, you've built a really significant portfolio based on just networking and getting your, your name out there. That's really cheap or free. So you don't have to go the paid marketing side if you don't choose to do that. So I think it's really interesting that you're moving into the mobile home park space. So at what point you, did you decide to move into that? And what was the appeal to mobile home parks? Yeah, really, it was kind of an interesting transition. So I had done these, you know, smaller multifamily stuff. And I, I did a couple other purchases where they were, you know, 15, 20 unit multifamily. And I really wanted to scale into larger multifamily. And mobile home parks, they weren't really on my radar as something that I was super interested in. But as I was looking in the, in the multifamily space, I just felt like returns were getting condensed down to nothing. I mean, cap rates were just shrinking and condensing down. A lot of the stuff that was, uh, you know, being sent to me and even the off-market stuff, I'm just digging through the numbers and I'm going, this is, this is junk. Like I have no interest in, you know, no returns. And, you know, everything was based on performa. All the performance looked great, but I don't care about performa. I'm like, I want actuals, you know? So it, it would look real, real good on paper. And you know, I started building these relationships with, you know, commercial brokers and, it's kind of funny because on, on the residential side, you get a lot of agents saying, they send you stuff and say, oh my gosh, this is a great investment. You know, and you look at it going, no, this is a cute house in a great neighborhood, but it doesn't make, necessarily make it a, a good investment, right? And in the commercial space, it was actually similar. I thought that would change and there'd be a little more uh, higher level of uh, sophistication on the investment side. But same thing, a lot of these commercial brokers would say, oh my gosh, great investment. And I start digging into the numbers and I'm going, yeah, the performa looks great. But that's not what the actual is. It's a horrible investment. If everything went perfect and you got rents, you know, up to the higher than what it would probably rent for, then yes, it would pencil out as a very okay investment. I just wasn't attracted to, to that. Like I, I wanted return. I wanted something that made sense. And the mobile home park space operates a lot like multifamily. And the two mobile home parks that I purchased last year, they just fit that model of, you know, poorly managed, under-rented, some deferred maintenance, but they penciled the way they sat. So I like properties, they cash flow today, right? They cash flow when I buy them, but there's also upside. And these parks had, they had that. They fit that model of, they work today when I close, they're cash flow positive, and there's a lot of upside. That makes a lot of sense. So after doing a, a few different asset categories, what do you feel is your favorite? I don't know if I have a favorite. Um, you know, I, I think I said it before, there's, I've never bought a property that I regret buying. You know, I, I like the mobile home park space. I think that, you know, things will shift and I'll probably go back into multifamily. I think there's going to be an opportunity in that space. I mean, I, I think we're actually going to have a huge economic meltdown here shortly. You know, I'm not an economist and I, you know, I'm not saying that I can predict anything, but I just have this gut feeling. And there's a lot of things pointing to that. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the multifamily space. It's really interesting to talk about multifamily. I have a friend of mine that has about a thousand units and he has a, about a 130 unit complex in a, I'd say a B class city. And I think he paid like, he bought it in like 2010. So it was like a crazy cheap yep. purchase, but uh, he got offered $7 million for it. And he was like, you know, Brad, I'm, I'm going to make like four or 5 million bucks on this thing, but I don't know where to put the cash 
yeah. to, to even make it make sense. And he was like, I've looked at it forwards and backwards, this REIT that's going to come in, that's made this offer. If they renovated the spaces, raised the rents, he said, I still can't make sense of it financially. And it seems like that there's a lot of, of pressure on the cap rates, especially once you get what he said above 80 units, you know, it's just yeah. that's where the bigger players are coming in and, and doing that. Let's talk about the economy because it's something that I think is really interesting right now. There's approximately 7 million houses that are in forbearance or behind on payments. I saw an article in, um, I think it was from the Dallas Times that said 22, no, it was in Houston, Houston Chronicle, I believe, 22% of uh, FHA mortgages in Houston are behind on payments. I mean, that's a big, big number. So we kind of talked about you feel like there's going to be some economic downward pressure coming. What do you feel is coming and what's the best way to play that in your space? I think the best way to play it is really just just be aware. You know, I mean, real estate doesn't move that fast in comparison to, say, the stock market, right? You're not going to wake up and everything's just going to be completely different in the real estate world. So I think for one, just just being aware and paying attention. I mean, that's what really helped me, you know, going into 08 when people were freaked out. It was just paying attention to what the market's doing. You know, that being said, I mean, I just think we're propped up as a nation on printed money. And so you know, it's, it's not a political thing. It's just, there's a lot of money being printed and there's a lot of money being printed and handed out to everybody, you know, the poor, the middle class, the upper middle class, the rich, the ultra rich, there's a lot of money just being printed and given out. And I just don't think that's sustainable. And so, you know, when that stops, you know, and when businesses try to open back up, I think there's a lot of businesses that are just not going to make it. And, you know, and those businesses have employees that just aren't going to have jobs and those employees have to pay rent and they're not going to be able to afford rent. So just on a really basic level, I just don't see as a country how that's sustainable. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch because interest rates are super low and, you know, housing price inventory is low and people are paying a whole lot of money for a whole little. And I just don't see how that's, how that's sustainable. And, you know, even in the even in the multifamily space where I can see things, you know, having, having issues is a lot of these syndications. And I, I think there's almost a bubble within the syndication model. Now there's some, you know, I have some friends that run great syndications and people are really successful in that space, but a lot of people have jumped in that space and they're buying things that just don't have the return they used to. And if those properties, it's, it's very similar to, wait, I met a lot of people that they bought these properties banking on an appreciate, you know, a lot of appreciation or they had to have rent increases for the property to work. And so I think it's very possible that it's going to be that same scenario where these properties don't pencil today and we're going to have this oh shit moment of, wow, this property does not appraise, this property does not rent for what we thought and and now what? And those properties yeah. can go back to the banks. And then in the single family and small multifamily space, it's going to be, oh wow, I don't have a job anymore. I can't pay I, I can't pay my mortgage and it's going to go back to the bank. That's what I see. I'm not an economist. I don't really know. I just, it's a gut feeling and there's just too many signs that point to there's going to be a big change. Yeah. It's really interesting. Everyone that I have on the podcast here, the, the past six months has really in one form or another showed concern about what's going on in the real estate world and in the economy, you know, and nobody really knows. And one of my favorite uh, economic jokes, if there is such a thing is uh, what, uh, 12 of the last 10 recessions have been predicted by economists. So, yeah. I mean, economists are all, all the time predicting sure. these things, but, uh, you know, it's, I think that we can say that the market 
in certain asset classes just doesn't make sense. And you yeah. know, I'm a big fan of Buffett. He's like, you know, if something doesn't make sense, you invest in what makes sense to you, you know, and what yeah. you understand. So um, that certainly makes sense. Let me ask this. So what do you think you would have liked to have known when you started that you now know today? Gosh, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, just realizing how, like early on, how important those relationships are. I mean, I realized that, but I think it, you know, reflecting back, I don't, it took me several years to really realize, you know, how important that is. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that I'd want others to realize is like there, if, if you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. I mean, there's a lot of ways to be successful within real estate. So I think one thing for me was, you know, I didn't go to any kind of paid event any, at all for like years, you know, and then the first time I ever went to a paid event, I met other investors. And what I realized that I didn't realize before is everybody within the real estate world and investment real estate world, they were all doing it a different way. Like people were finding success in so many different types of real estate. And that really opened my mind to, there's not just one way to do it. Like there's a lot of ways and there's a lot of asset classes within real estate. And there's a lot of ways to be successful in real estate. I mean, people are are kicking ass in single family and multifamily and commercial and self-storage and development. I mean, there's all these different ways, you know, and you, you just gotta, gotta find what, what makes sense for you and, and go for it. So let's say that I'm someone that I'm, I'm interested in real estate. I want to do this business, but I have no money and no time. And, and I have the, the idea that, well, I just can't do this business. So what do you say to that person? And I'm sure that because of your success, you have people come to you all the time with that exact scenario. So what do you say yep. to people? Yeah, I've had that scenario. I, I almost always say, go read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and call him back. And, <laughs> and, and then a lot of them don't read the book. But the ones that do, they call me back. And those are the people that I love pouring into, right? So, and then I, I say kind of what I said earlier on the show, I said, start telling people what you're looking for. Start going through the process. Even in this market, even it being a hot market, you have to tell people what you're looking for, that you're getting into real estate, that you're looking to invest in real estate. And then you got to start analyzing deals. And so many people will message back and say, oh my gosh, I, have, I had no idea this guy that I worked with. I had no idea my neighbor, they own investment property. But as soon as they open their mouth, all of a sudden they have all these conversations around real estate. And it's usually people in their world that they had no idea was involved in real estate in, in some form or another. And even if it's not someone directly in your circle, it might be a neighbor's mom or you know, a friend's neighbor, whatever it might be. But as soon as they open their mouth, and start sharing what it is that they're that they're looking for. All these opportunities come their way, and that's like time and time again. That's and then for me, that's super exciting when someone messages me back and was like, "Oh my gosh, I went on Craigslist, or I went and told my neighbor, I told this you know person at work, and they're interested in uh, you know they they have rental properties or they want to lend me money so I can invest in real estate." And it's you just got to open your mouth. That's super cool, man. Very cool, Gabriel. For those that are interested in reaching out to you, how can they do that? Yeah, the best way is on Instagram. I'm pretty active on Instagram and uh, it's just at Gabriel R. Hamill or if you just search Gabriel Hamill, you'll find me. Very good. We'll put that in the show notes, man. Appreciate you being with us. Enjoyed it very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.